Nebraska is the sixth studio album by Bruce Springsteen and was released on September 30th, 1982. It marked a stark departure from Springsteen's previous five albums, all of which exuded energy, youth, optimism, and joy. The 10 songs on Nebraska are solemn and introspective, with only brief moments of grace and redemption knitted throughout the otherwise melancholy lyrics. These songs are populated with the ordinary people, down on their luck, blue-collar characters who face harsh challenges in life, and some oftentimes are at a crossroads. These songs focus on sub subjects as outsiders, criminals, the poverty-stricken, and even mass murderers, all whom have little hope for the future, or, as in the case of the title track, no future at all. The album's raw vocals and melancholy tone paired with the pitch black dark lyrics cause it to be described by critics upon its release as one of the most challenging albums ever released by a major star on a major record label. Because of Nebraska's somber content, Springsteen chose not to tour in support of the album and this is the only album in his entire catalog in which he did not tour in support of. 40 years after its release, Nebraska is as good, if not better, and more relevant today than it was when it was released in 1982. On today's episode, we examine Springsteen's masterpiece, Nebraska Song by Song. So put your makeup on Fix your hair up pretty and meet me tonight in Atlantic City because this is That One Show, Season 2, Episode 8, Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Before we get into the 10 songs that make up Nebraska, I'd like to give a little bit about the background in the recording and release thereof. Initially, Bruce recorded the demos for this album at his home using a four-track cassette recorder. The demos were sparse, and he only used an acoustic guitar, a harmonica, a mandolin, glockenspiel, tambourine, organ, and a synthesizer. Now, after he completed work on these demos, Springsteen brought the songs to the studio and worked with the E Street Band in April of 1982 on full band rock and roll versions of these songs. These sessions are commonly referred to as the Electric Nebraska Sessions. Now, a bit about the Electric Nebraska. It is, upon Springsteen fans, the white whale of bootlegs. It's never, ever been officially or unofficially in full release. I don't know if it ever will be, but that is a story for another day. 
On these sessions recording with Bruce and the entire band, only Springsteen and his manager, John Landau, had any decision-making power in this process. They come to determine that these songs were too personal and raw, haunting and folky on the home tape demos that Springsteen brought to the studio and they could, those demos, not be duplicated or equal in the studio with a full band. So that's how these demos ended up making the album Nebraska. Later, in an interview with Rolling Stone, Springsteen said, I was just doing songs for the next rock album and decided that what I always took me so long in the studio was the writing. I'd get in there and I just wouldn't have the material fully written or it wasn't written well enough to record. So I would record for a month and maybe only get a couple things, go home, write some more, record for another month. It just not was very efficient. So this time, he continues, I got a little four track cassette machine and said, I'm gonna record these songs and if they sound good with just me doing them, then I'll teach them to the band. He continues, I could sing and play the guitar and then I had two tracks to do something else like overdub a guitar and add maybe the harmony. It was just gonna be some demos. And then I had a little Echoplex machine that I mixed through and that was it. And that was the tape that became the record. It's amazing that it got there cause I was carrying that cassette around with me in my pocket, even without a case for a couple of weeks, just dragging it around. And finally, we realized uh, that's the album and what an album it is. We will take a very brief break at this time, and we will come back and break down all 10 songs that make up Nebraska. with the title track, Nebraska, which is a first-person narrative based on the true story of teenage killers, 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugit. Charles Starkweather was a high school dropout with a lot of issues. He grew up in a very poor home, and when he turned 18, he left home and attempted to provide for himself by taking a job in a newspaper warehouse owned by Western Union. And it was around this time that Starkweather met his young lover, Carol Ann Fugit, through her sister. On one of their dates, Starkweather thought it'd be a good idea to teach Carol Ann how to drive a car. In doing so, Carol Ann crashed this car. And the car was actually Charles Starkweather's father's car, Guy. Upon hearing this news, Guy became very disappointed and banished his son from ever coming home again after a very bad fight. Starkweather later ended his job at this warehouse and began working as a trash man. And during this time, he started developing different thoughts aimed at improving his situation. And he came up with the philosophy that 
Dead people are all on the same level. His murders started somewhere in November of 1957 when he shot and killed Robert Covert and an attendant at a local gas station. This happened after Covert declined to sell him a stuffed animal on credit. In January the next year, 1958, he visited the home of his girlfriend where he met her mom and her stepdad, Marion and Belder Bartlett. However, Carol Ann was not home at this time. It is believed that her parents weren't a fan of her new boyfriend, and an argument, of course, began. So Starkweather shot both and later stabbed and strangled her baby sister, Betty Jean, who was only two years old at the time. He subsequently fought Fugit's assistants to secretly bury the corpse of her own family with whom he had killed. Strangely enough, she did assist in in burying the bodies in the backyard. Apparently, killing her mom, dad, and sister wasn't enough for Fugit to break up with Starkweather. After noticing the police had gotten word of their, these murders, Fugit and Starkweather fled to a farmhouse that was owned by August Meyer, which was a friend of the family. Starkweather later shot and killed the 70-year-old August Meyer before murdering another couple by the name of Carol King and Robert Jensen. By the end of the year, his murder count had rose to 11 people, making him one of the most wanted men in the nation. During a car chase, a few weeks later, he was injured by a piece of glass from the windshield. After a police officer fired at him, he was later arrested and appeared in court in 1958. Though initially he argued that he held the girlfriend hostage and forced her to take part in these crimes and cover-ups, he further explained that she also actually did participate in these actions. After the trial in which he was found guilty, Starkweather was condemned to death by electrocution. Fugit, for her part, was given life in prison, but she was paroled in 1976, and she became the youngest girl in the history of America to appear before court for a first-degree murder charge. As the song Nebraska tells the tale from the point of view of Charles Starkweather as he awaits execution, it is a very dark opening to a very Bleak album. I saw her standing on her front lawn, just a twirling her baton. Me and her went for.
two, Atlantic City, is most likely the most well-known song on Nebraska, and it is the only song from the album that would be included in Springsteen's greatest hits compilation years later. Atlantic City depicts the story of a young couple's escape to Atlantic City, New Jersey. It also wrestles with the inviolability of death. As the man in the relationship intends to take a job in organized crime once he gets to Atlantic City due to desperation caused by his many deaths. The opening lines of this song refer to the then recent mafia violence that was taking place in nearby Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Springsteen sings that upon the song's opening, where they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. Now they blew up his house too. The chicken man in this song refers to the Philadelphia crime family boss, Phil the Chicken Man Testa, who was killed by a rival gangster in March of 1981, with whom planted a nail bomb in his Philadelphia home. Now while Atlantic City is considered the turf of the Philadelphia crime family, there was considerable infighting during the late 70s and early 1980s among the Italian-American mafia for the dominance over the organized crime rackets in this city following the legalization of gambling there in 1976. By the 1970s and early 80s, Atlantic City had experienced a significant decline from its heyday as a prominent resort town in the early 20th century, and the introduction of this legal gambling was proposed as a potential means of reviving the city and its struggling economy. Atlantic City evokes the widespread uncertainty of these times regarding legalized gambling during its early years in Atlantic City and the promises thereof to help resurrect it, as well as a young man's own uncertainty of his future about taking the less than savory job of working for the mob. Everybody dies, baby, that's a fact, but maybe everything that dies someday comes back. This is Nebraska, Song 2, Atlantic City. Well, they blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. Now they blew up his house too. Down on the boardwalk, they're getting ready for a fight. three on Nebraska is Mansion on the Hill. Now, if this title sounds familiar, it is, of course, the title of a Hank Williams Sr. song from 1947. And it is pretty common knowledge that Bruce Springsteen himself, and he does acknowledge this, lifted the title of this song from Hank's. Hank's influence goes way beyond the song's title, however. 
for Bruce Springsteen took the entire song structure and meter from Hank Williams and even the silent and still part of the lyrics. And while he substantially changed the melody, it's still almost impossible to listen to Hank's song and Bruce's song and not hear the latter reflected in the former. Thematically, William's wistful breakup song is very different from Bruce's song about childhood reminiscence. Both, however, do employ the mansion on a hill as a metaphor for a life that seems unattainable by their narrators. It's not a coincidence. For Bruce, upon writing and recording this album was deep into a fascination with Hank Williams Sr. Mansion on the Hill originates from the actual recording during Darkness on the Edge of Town, his previous studio album, and his 1982 recording and inclusion of Mansion on the Hill on Nebraska owes so much to Williams that a plausible argument can be made to include Hank Williams Sr. as a co-writer on this song. But while Springsteen may owe his central conceit and construction of this song to Hank Sr., the story he tells is his own. On first listen, Mansion on the Hill is a straightforward ballad, a nostalgic trip down memory lane, and the town in which the narrator grew up in. There is, however, a twist at the end of this song, though one that does shine a light on Bruce's frame of mind at this particular moment in his life, and ones that sly enough to maybe escape the listeners if we are not paying close attention. So let's pay attention now and take a deep listen to Song 3, Mansion on the Hill. There's a place out on the edge of town, sir Rising above the factories and the fields I ever since I was a child I can is titled Johnny 99. In terms of plot, this song also known nods to Frankie Teardrop. The storyline is the same, though by comparison it might even pass for a regular rock and roll song, albeit one played without a proper band. A son's record-style rockabilly number in which Springsteen lets his voice carry most of the song by itself. Johnny 99 sounds a lot like a classic American country blues or rock and roll song from the 50s. And much like the folk songs that inform those genres, it's a tale told 
of casualties. Just as he did with Atlantic City, the protagonist in Springsteen's Johnny 99 is a desperate man pushed to do something he never thought himself capable of doing. Inspired by the actual closing of a Ford plant in Mawa, New Jersey, where the song's actions take place, Johnny 99 follows Ralph, who went out looking for a job, and he found none. And by the end of the first verse, Ralph murders a man. It's about as bleak as Springsteen ever got, but it's still cut from the same cloth as songs like Darkness on the Edge of Town and even Racing in the Street where many of his biggest anthems were about overcoming circumstances or finding hope in spite of things that hold us back. Sometimes he seems just to say that things don't work out in the end, they go bad, and sometimes really bad and hopelessly so. Johnny 99 is one of these songs, which despite essentially being a murder ballad, made it to the top 50 billboard mainstream rock tracks upon its release. Here is Johnny 99. magazine Double Take, Bruce Springsteen explained where his head was at the time when he wrote and recorded the songs that would eventually become the Nebraska album. He says, I think I'd come out of a period of my own writing where I've been writing big, sometimes operatic and occasionally rhetorical songs. He goes on to say, I was interested in finding another way to write about these subjects, about people, another way to address what was going on around me at the time in the, our country, a more scaled down, more personal, more restrained way of getting my ideas across. In terms of the fifth song on Nebraska titled Highway Patrolman, that restraint is evident in the way that Springsteen doesn't feel the need to fill in every little detail or burden the song with exposition. The narrator, a police officer by the name of Joe Roberts is clearly a man of few words. Yet what's rolling inside of him can be detected in Springsteen's world-weary delivery in this song. His basic problem is he is sworn to uphold the law in a small town in Michigan by the name of Perrinville. But as he sums it up, I've got a brother named Frankie, and Frankie ain't no good. The narrator then details how this scenario has played itself out over their entire life. Frankie will cause trouble and Joe will use his connections and position to sweep 
those problems under the rug. But when it's your brother, sometimes you look the other way, Springsteen sings in this song, and it's immediately clear where this stance of willful ignorance will lead. But Joe, the narrator, defends himself by telling nostalgic stories of happier times between he and his brother, times filled with drinking and singing. For nothing feels better than blood on blood, he explains. And Joe defends his actions by falling back on family ties. Man turns his back on his family. Well, he just ain't no good. Springsteen takes a verse of this song to explain how the brothers came to be in their positions, which is important because the themes of poverty and people forced into suffocating circumstances run rapid throughout the entire album of Nebraska. Joe tells how he attempted to farm until he could no longer make ends meet. Meanwhile, his brother Frankie spent time in the army at a time when the Vietnam War was really ramping up. So we can only assume that his own personal problems were exacerbated by his stint in the Vietnam War. And it all leads to climatic final verse when Frankie finally does the kind of damage that can't be ignored. And his brother Joe hustles out of his vehicle and starts speeding through the night streets in search of his brother. The juxtaposition in this verse is fascinating as the suspenseful high-speed pursuit is contrasted by the staggering pace of the song. We are led to believe that Joe might finally confront his wayward brother, but Springsteen gives us a final twist. While well, I chased him through the country roads till a sign said Canadian border five miles from here, I pulled over to the side of the highway and watched his taillights disappear. The ambivalence of this ending is truly haunting. Frankie might be getting away for now, but it seems a given that he is headed for a very bad end without his brother around to help clean up his messes. And for all of his good intentions, Joe is now left to wonder if he actually enabled Frankie's actions. Highway Patrolman is a song about impossible choices. It is a story song that teaches no lessons and leaves no morals. It's a also proof that in songwriting, less can be more especially when you've got a master like Bruce Springsteen deciding what to include and what to leave out for the listeners to figure out themselves. Here is maybe my favorite song on the album, Highway Patrolman. My name is Joe Roberts. I work for the state I'm a sergeant out of Burnville Barracks number eight I always done an honest job As honest as I could I got a brother named Frankie And Frankie ain't no good Ever since we was young kids, it's been the same come down. I get a call on the short week, Frankie's in trouble downtown. 
Song six is called State Trooper, and it, like the title track, is the story of a man who is driving around committing a violent crime spree. The narrator is driving around trying to clear his mind and come to grips with the crimes he has committed. Talking to himself during this drive, he is begging for a state trooper not to pull him over. Now, you would think he doesn't want this state trooper to pull him over because he doesn't want to get caught and taken to prison. That's not necessarily the truth, however, because he openly begs the pretend state trooper not to pull him over because he actually does not want to have to kill said state trooper. So here is a man who have done, has done reprehensible things, but he realizes that he doesn't really want to kill anyone else, especially a cop. He even tells the figurative state trooper to think of his own wife and kids and please don't pull him over. Here is Nebraska Track 6 State Trooper. Springsteen states is autobiographical. It details an actual memory he has of riding in the back seat of his father's car with his sister to buy a new car. This song reflects the shame one feels usually at the age when you are self-conscious about everything about having to buy and be seen in a used car. Once again, Springsteen spins lyrical poetry in the words of this song. The line about the salesman looking at his old man's hands tells us volumes. It tells us that his dad is a laborer and the salesman knows he has him in a corner. The bitterness a teen feels at their parents for making him suffer this humiliation. Here is a bit of the autobiographical song, Track 7, Used Cars. Now the neighbors come from near and far As we pull up in our brand new used car I wish we just hit the gas and let out a cry 
songs on Nebraska, the next track, Open All Night, is the only one to feature an electric guitar. With a Chuck Berry style guitar weir, Open All Night tells the story of an unnamed narrator's all-night drive across industrial New Jersey to reach his girl Wanda, with whom he met when she was a waitress at the Route 60's Bob's Big Boy Burgers. This is sort of the opposite of all the other downbeat loners in the night that Springsteen writes about on this album, for it has a sense of giddiness that comes from being sleep-deprived and amped up on something other and motivated to get away from a cruddy job and back to your best gal for a weekend away. Here is Nebraska Track 8 Open All Night. was the very last song Springsteen actually finished writing and recorded for the album Nebraska. An album that became solo Springsteen when he felt adding the band detracted from the feel of these songs. Bruce wrote this song based on childhood memories of his family and his distant relationship at the time with his dad. Other songs where Springsteen alludes to his father and their relationship include the songs Factory, Independence Day, and Adam Raised a Cane. At a concert in Los Angeles in 1990, before playing this song, Springsteen introduced it with this story. Quote, I had this habit for a long time. I used to get in my car and drive back through my old neighborhood in the town I grew up in. I'd always drive past all the old houses that I used to live in, sometimes very late at night. I got so I would do it really regularly, maybe two, three, sometimes even four times a week for several years. I eventually got to wondering, what the hell am I doing? So I went to see a psychiatrist. I said, Doc, 
For years, I've been getting in my car and driving past my old houses. Late at night, what am I doing? And he said, I want you to tell me what you think you're doing. And I go, hey, but that's what I'm paying you for. And he said, well, something bad happened and you're going back thinking you can make it right again. Something went wrong and you keep going back to see if you can fix it and make something right. And I sat there and I said, that is what I'm doing. And he said, well, you can't. You can't go back and fix something in the past. You can't go back and right or wrong. Here is track nine, My Father's House. I woke and I imagined the hard things that pulled us apart. We'll never again, sir, tear us from each other's hearts. I got dressed into that house I did right. Out on the road, I could see its windows shining in light. I walked up the steps and stood on the porch. A woman I didn't recognize came and spoke to me through a chain door. I told her my story and who I'd come for. She said, I'm sorry, son, but no one by that name lives here anymore. We have come now to track 10, the closing song on Nebraska. Reason to Believe, a song whose title suggests and many believe actually offers a small ray of hope at the very end of an otherwise dark, bleak, and depressing album. I actually disagree with those folks. In my opinion, Reason to Believe is not an optimistic song. Bruce himself introduced this song often before playing it live as a song about blind faith. Listening to this song, we realize it is a song about having to poke a dead dog with a stick, hoping it may regain life. We realize it is a song about someone waiting for a lost lover that will never come back. We realize that it is a song about faith and how faith is not necessarily always optimistic, that at times faith can be self-delusional and even dangerous. The narrator of Reason to Believe is more amazed that this faith exists than he is of the actual acceptance of faith existing. The unspoken subtext of Reason 
to believe is that there actually isn't a reason to believe. It is the only blind shadows of faith that people cling to out of desperation. The old man in this song dies and the baby is baptized and the river of delusional hope and the pattern of lying to oneself continues. Rather than a ray of hope, this song to me is a deeply pessimistic yet empathetic take on what it takes to live through the despairs and disappointments of this life. Reason to Believe closes this album out and it is a song that at times is both terrifying, beautiful, and almost always misunderstood. This has been that one show with Brian Combs, and this is the closing track on Nebraska Reason to Believe. That One Show with Brian Combs is brought to you by Thatcher Barbecue Company and is written, produced, and recorded by me, Brian Combs. You can look me up on social media, on Twitter, at That One Show BC, on Instagram, at That One Show with Brian Combs, on Facebook, at That One Show Podcast, and on Patreon at That One Show. So go follow us along on any of those sites and please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, whichever you prefer. And finally, if you are enjoying this show, I ask from the bottom of my heart that you recommend it to at least one other person with whom you feel would enjoy it as well. Until next time, this has been That One Show with Brian Combs.